Section 5 of Police. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Police by Robert W. Chambers. The Third Eye, Part 3. As we three walked slowly back to the campfire, where our evening meal was now ready, Evelyn Gray, who walked between us, told us what she knew about the hunting of these three-eyed men by Seminoles, how intense was the hatred of Indians for these people, how murderously they behaved toward any one of them whom they could track down and catch. Tiger Tail told me, she went on, that in all probability the strange race was nearing extinction, but that all had not yet been exterminated, because now and then, when hunting along Black Bayou, traces of living three-eyed men were still found by him and his people. No later than last week, Tiger Tail himself had startled one of these strange denizens of Black Bayou from a meal of fish and had heard him leap through the bushes and plunge into the water. It appears that centuries of persecution have made these three-eyed men partially amphibious, that is, capable of filling their lungs with air and remaining underwater almost as long as a turtle. That's impossible, said Kemper bluntly. I thought so myself, she said with a smile. Until Tiger Tail told me a little more about them. He says that they can breathe through pores of their skins, that their bodies are covered with a thick silky hair, and that when they dive, they carry down with them enough air to form a sort of skin over them, so that underwater, their bodies appear to be silver-plated. Good lord, faltered Kimber. That is a little too much. Yes, said I. That is exactly what air-breathing water beetles do. The globules of air clinging to the body hairs appear to silver-plate them, and they can remain below indefinitely. Breathing through spiracles, doubtless the skin pores of these men have taken on the character of spiracles. You know, he said in a curious flat voice, which sounded like the tone of a partially stupefied man. This whole business is so grotesque, apparently so wildly absurd, that it's having a sort of a nightmare effect on me. And dropping his voice to a whisper close to my ear. Good heavens, he said. Can you reconcile such a creature as we are starting out to hunt with anything living known to science? No, I replied in a guarded tone. And there are moments, Kemper, since I have come into possession of Miss Gray's story, when I find myself seriously doubting my own sanity. I'm doubting mine now, he whispered. Only that girl is so fresh and wholesome and human and sane. She is very clever, I said. And really beautiful. She is intelligent, I remarked. There was a chill in my tone which doubtless discouraged Kemper, for he ventured nothing further concerning her superficially personal attractions. After all, if any questions of priority were to arise, the pretty waitress was my discovery. And in the scientific world, it is an inflexible rule that he who first discovers any particular specimen of any species whatever is first entitled to describe and comment upon that specimen without interference or unsolicited advice from anybody. Maybe there was in my eye something that expressed as much, 
for where Kemper caught my cold gaze fixed upon him. He winced and looked away like a reproved setter dog who knew better, which also, for the moment, put an end to the rather gay and frivolous line of small talk which he had again begun with the pretty waitress. I was exceedingly surprised at Professor William Henry Kemper, D.F. As we approached the campfire, the loathsome odor of frying mullet saluted my nostrils. Kemper, glancing as grew, said aside to me, That is an odd-looking fellow. What is he? Menarchan? Oh, just a beachcomber. I don't know what he is. He strikes me as dirty. Though he can't be so, physically. I don't like him and I don't know why. And I wish we'd engaged somebody else to guide us. Toward dawn, something awoke me and I sat up in my blanket under the moon. But my leg had not been pulled. Kemper snored at my side. In her little dog tent, the pretty waitress probably was fast asleep. I knew it because the string she had tied to one of her ornamental ankles still lay across the ground, convenient to my hand. In any emergency, I had only to pull it to awake her. A similar string tied to my ankle ran parallel to hers and disappeared under the flap of her tent. This was for her to pull if she liked. She had never yet pulled it, nor I the other. Nevertheless, I truly felt that these humble strings were, in a subtle sense, ties that bound us together. No wonder Kemper's behavior had slightly irritated me. I looked up at the silver moon. I glanced at Kemper's unlovely bulk, swatch head in a blanket. I contemplated the dog tent with, perhaps, that slight trace of sentiment which a semi-tropical moon is likely to inspire even in jellyfish. And suddenly, I remembered Gru and looked for him. He was accustomed to sleep in his boat, but I did not see him in either of the boats. Here and there were a few lumpy shadows in the moonlight, but none of them was Gru lying prone on the ground. Where the devil had he gone? Cautiously, I untied my ankle string, rose in my pajamas, stepped into my slippers, and walked out through the moonlight. There was nothing to hide Gru, no rocks or vegetation, except the solitary palm on the backbone of the reef. I walked as far as the tree and looked up in the arch in fronds. Nobody was up there. I could see the moonlit sky through the fronds. Nor was Gru lying asleep anywhere on the other side of the coral ridge. And suddenly, I became aware of all my latent distrusts and dislike for the man. And the vigor of my sentiment surprised me because I really had not understood how deep and thorough my dislike had been. Also, his utter disappearance struck me as uncanny. Both boats were there, and there were many leagues of sea to the nearest coast. Troubled and puzzled, I turned and walked back to the dead embers of the fire. Kemper had merely changed the timber of his snore to a whistling aria, which at any other time would have enraged me. Now, somehow, it almost comforted me. Seated on the shore, I looked out to the sea, racking my brains for an explanation of Gru's disappearance. And while I sat there racking them, for out on the water, a little flock of ducks suddenly scattered and rose with frightened quackings and furiously beaten wings. For a moment, I thought I saw a round, dark object on the waves where the flock had been. And while I sat there watching, up out of the sea along the reef to my right, crawled a naked, dripping figure holding a dead duck in his mouth. Fascinated, I watched it, 
recognizing Gru with his ratty black hair all plastered over his face. Whether he caught sign of me or not, I don't know. But he suddenly dropped the dead duck from his mouth, turned and dived underwater. It was a grim and horrid species of sport or pastime. This amphibious business of his, catching wild birds and dragging them out as though he were an animal. Evidently, he was ashamed of himself, for he had dropped the duck. I watched it floating by on the waves, its head underwater. Suddenly, something jerked it under. A fish, perhaps, for it did not come up and float again, as far as I could see. When I went back to camp, Gru lay apparently asleep on the north side of the fire. I glanced at him in disgust and crawled into my tent. The next day, Evelyn Gray awoke with a headache and kept her tent. I had all I could do to prevent Kemper from prescribing for her. I did that myself, sitting beside her and testing her pulse for hours at a time, while Kemper took one of Gru's grains and went off into the mangroves and spread grunt and eels for a chowder which he said he knew how to concoct. Toward afternoon, the pretty waitress felt much better, and I warned Kemper and Gru that we should sail for Black Bayou after dinner. Dinner was a mess, as usual, consisting of fried mullet and rice, and a sort of chowder in which the only ingredients I recognized were sections of crayfish. After we had finished and had withdrawn from the fire, Gru scraped every remaining shred of food into a kettle and went for it. To see him feed made me sick, so I rejoined Miss Gray and Kemper, who had found a green coconut and were alternately deriving nourishment from the milk inside. Somehow or other, there seemed to me a certain levity about that performance, and it made me uncomfortable, but I managed to smile a rather sickly smile when they offered me a drought, and I took a pull at the milk. I don't exactly know why, because I don't like it. But the moon was up over the sea now, and the dusk was languorously balmy, and I didn't care to leave those two drinking milk out of the same coconut under a tropic moon. Not that my interest in Evelyn Gray was other than scientific, but, after all, it was I who had discovered her. We sailed as soon as grew gobbling and snuffling had cleaned up the last crumb of food. Kemper blandly offered to take Miss Gray into his boat, saying that he feared my boat was overcrowded. What with the paraphernalia, the folding cage, grew Miss Gray, and myself. I sat on the suggestion, but offered to take my own teller and lend him grew. He couldn't wriggle out of it, seeing that his alleged motive had been the overcrowding of my boat. But he looked rather sick when grew went abroad his boat. As for me, I hoisted sail with something so near a chuckle that it surprised me, and I looked at Evelyn Gray to see whether she had noticed the unseemly symptom. Apparently she had not. She sat forward, her eye fixed soulfully upon the moon. Had I been dedicated to any profession except a scientific one, but let that pass. Gru and Kemper's sailboat led, and my boat followed out into the silvery and purple dusk now all sparkling under the light luster of the moon. Dimly I saw vast rafts of wild duck part and swim leisurely away to port and starboards, leaving a glittering lane of water for us to sail through. Into the scintillant night from the sea sprang mullet, silvery, quivering, falling back into the wash with a splash. Here and there in the moonlight steered ominous black triangles 
circling us, leading us, cheering across, bowing flesh and wake. All phosphorescent will lamp and sea fire, the fins of great sharks. You need have no fear, said I to the pretty waitress. She said nothing. Of course, if you are afraid, I added, perhaps you might care to change your seat. There was room in the stern where I sat. Do you think there is any danger? She asked. From sharks? Yes. Reaching up and biting you? Yes. Oh, I don't really suppose there is, I said, managing to convey the idea. I am ashamed to say that the catastrophe was a possibility. She came over and seated herself beside me. I was very much ashamed of myself, but I could not repress a triumphant glance ahead of the other boat, where Kemper sat huddled forward, evidently bored to extinction. Every now and then, I could see him turn and crane his neck as though in an effort to distinguish what was going on in our boat. There was nothing going on, absolutely nothing. The moon was magnificent, and I think the pretty waitress must have been a little tired, for her head dropped and nodded at moments. Even while I was talking to her about a specimen of Euplectella speciosa, on which I had written a monograph, so she must have been really tired for the subject was interesting. You won't encumber my operations with sheet and teller, I said to her kindly, if you care to rest your head against my shoulder. Evidently she was very tired, for she did so, and closed her eyes. After a while, fearing that she might fall over backward into the sea, but let that pass. I don't know whether or not Kemper could distinguish anything aboard our boat. He craned his head enough to twist it off his neck. To be so utterly, so blindly devoted to science is a great safeguard for a man. Single-mindedness, however, need not induce atrophy of every human impulse. I drew the pre waitress closer. Not that the night was cold, but it might become so. Changes in the tropics come swiftly. It is well to be prepared. Her cheek felt very soft against my shoulder. There seemed to be a faint perfume about her hair. It really was odd how subtly fragrant she seemed to be. Almost, perhaps, a matter of scientific interest. Her hands did not seem to be chilled. They did seem unusually smooth and soft. I said to her, When at home, I suppose your mother tucks you in, doesn't she? Yes. She nodded sleepily. And what does she do then? Said I with something of a ponderous playfulness with which I make scientific jokes at a meeting of the Bronx Anthropological Association when I preside. She kisses me and turns out the light, said Evelyn Gray, innocently. I don't know how much Kemper could distinguish. He kept dodging about and twisting his head until I really thought it would come off, unless it had been screwed on like the top of a piano stool. A few minutes later, he fired his pistol twice, and Evelyn sat up. I never knew why he fired. He never offered any explanation. End of section 5 Recording by Isam